Father God, by your Holy Spirit, please would you open our eyes so that we see clearly what you're saying to us here in this part of your word, so that we understand it, so that we understand how it points us to Jesus and what it means for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, things may come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Now, there's a a quote attributed to Abraham Lincoln, although there seems to be little actual evidence that he he really said it, but there we go. Uh, But it sums up a tension that we uh, we may well feel. You know, we we know that, that waiting and patience are important virtues, but maybe we also secretly suspect at times that if we don't take matters into our own hands and hustle, or in other words, get energetically involved in solving problems and making things happen ourselves, well, they won't happen, and we will miss out. Sometimes that might be uh, fair enough, but there are circumstances when waiting is absolutely what needs to happen. So there was the famous uh, Stanford marshmallow experiment uh, in the early 70s, and it uh, measured the ability of children to wait. And it did that by presenting them with a single marshmallow on a plate in front of them, along with the promise that if they waited a certain amount of time without eating the marshmallow, they could then have two marshmallows. Now, it turns out it is surprisingly difficult to get some children to wait for two marshmallows when they can have one right now. And of course, we know the same actually is true of all of us in different ways, not necessarily with marshmallows, but with other things. Why wait when you can have it now? Why save when you can get credit and pay later? Why bother waiting for marriage? Why wait for a home-cooked healthy meal when you can order fast food? And on it goes. When it comes to being a Christian, though, there is a sense that waiting is not just some optional extra to life as a Christian, but it's completely intrinsic. In the the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, Paul, the apostle, sums up living as a Christian like this. He says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We turn, we serve, he says, and then we wait for Jesus's return. There's always a sense that the best is not right now. The best is yet to come. So live for then, not for now. Don't get too comfortable here and now. Don't live for the present. Live for the future. Live for eternity and wait for it. And that waiting then overflows into how we experience things like prayer because if Christian life is fundamentally about waiting for Jesus to come back, it's no surprise that prayer very often works like that too. We pray for something that seems urgent and important for ourselves or for others in the face of illness or money worries or loneliness or job fears or relationship angst or anxiety about children and family or whatever it is, or or, or prayer simply for a loved one to come to faith in Jesus. And sometimes we have to wait. We have to wait days or weeks or months or years or lifetimes. And if anything, sometimes things seem to get worse and not better. 
Well, Genesis chapter 40 is a story about waiting. If the life of Joseph were something like the Star Wars saga, then after the initial selling into slavery, once he arrives in Egypt, we get two sets of three films in his life. Now, let's pretend that The Phantom Menace and the other two after that didn't happen. Focus on on the other ones, which are better. We've had Star Wars A New Hope last week in chapter 39. It's the first of three chapters based around prison how he got to prison after Potiphar's wife propositioned him and he faithfully refused her advances. That was chapter 39. Now in chapter 40, he's in prison. So chapter 40 is kind of Empire Strikes Back. It's part two of a three-parter. It's the one where in one sense, nothing definitive happens. And we have to wait for the return of the Jedi in chapter 41 next time for that. And then we get another three-part thriller with Joseph's brothers visiting him uh, in chapters 42 to 47. But this is, chapter 40 is Empire Strikes Back. In in one sense, its role is to set up the final film, to set up how Joseph gets out of prison when the cupbearer finally remembers him. But before we get there, Joseph has to deal with being in prison. And remember, he's in prison unjustly. He's done all the right things with Potiphar's wife. He's behaved uprightly and morally and with integrity. He's there unjustly, and now he has to wait. And so this chapter has lots to teach us about waiting. This chapter teaches us, first of all, then, about disappointing delay. Disappointing delay. It it sometimes happens, doesn't it, that people in power, think about this, people in power have troublesome officials who apparently work for them but cause problems for their boss, and in the end, they end up getting sacked. Now, of course, I'm struggling to think of any contemporary examples whatsoever, uh, you know, or things in the news this week or whatever, but Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker have maybe been sort of briefing the press against him or something, I don't know, or refusing to get with the programme on how wine and bread ought to be done in Pharaoh's court, and they end up in prison with Joseph, who, remember, is is not there because he's done anything wrong, but uh, there he is, and he's there with these people who who do appear to have done something wrong, and Joseph is a dreamer, as we know, and when the cupbearer and the baker each have disturbing dreams in the same night, he is ready and able to supply the interpretations of these dreams. Now, the idea that certain dreams have meanings was woven deeply into the the culture of that time. And actually, psychologists today would would agree they can be hugely significant for people, even if it's the exception rather than the norm for God himself to speak to someone in a dream. But here's the chief cupbearer, verse 9. In my dream, I saw a vine. And on the vine, three branches, which budded blossoms, and the the clusters ripened into grapes, which then get squeezed into Pharaoh's cup. What does it mean, Joseph? Well, the three branches are three days, Joseph says. Within three days, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and restore you to your old job in Downing Street. Sorry, I mean Pharaoh's palace. But, and this is a key verse, verse 14 When all goes well with me, remember me 
and show me kindness. And that word, that, that word for kindness, is the word that very often describes God's covenant, loving kindness towards his people. He's asking to be shown that sort of kindness that God has shown to his people. He's saying to the cupbearer, through him, could that kind of kindness be shown to him, to have mercy on him in his prison? He says, he goes on, doesn't he, look at what he says, I was forcibly carried off from my homeland. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. And actually, do you know, that word for dungeon could also be pit. It's the same word that we get in chapter 37 when he ends up in a pit. And so you see, this is, this, we just get a slight glimpse there of Joseph's sort of frustration with life. Because not once but twice, through no fault of his own, he's ended up in a pit, in a dungeon. Can you feel the temptation to disappointment at delay because you know why is this happening why am i stuck here what possible purpose could this have why is this happening yet again okay well that's the cupbearer then the chief baker wants to have a go because you know it went well for the cupbearer so let me try and make my dream sound as much like his as possible seems to be what he's doing so he had you know the cupbearer had three branches on his vine well i had three baskets of bread on my head and uh, all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and, uh, well, you know, uh, the, the birds were eating the bread. What's that about then? Well, once again, says Joseph, the three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift, and he's thinking, oh, he's going to lift up. Oh, brilliant. That's what he said to the cupbearer. No, he will lift off your head from your body and impale your body on a pole. And those birds that you dreamt about, they will eat your flesh. Well, quickly the scene changes to the third day, and Pharaoh does indeed lift the heads of the cupbearer and the baker. He lifts the head of the cupbearer like a king might say, chin up to someone who's sort of got their head bowed in reverence before them, and he's, he's lifting him up and restoring him to his position in the court. But he lifts the head of the baker off from his body and he impales him on a pole, all just as Joseph said. And then after all of that, last verse of the chapter, cupbearer restored, baker dead, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. What an anticlimax. Joseph, as we've seen, doing all the right things. He's got a position of authority in jail. He's giving a, a correct divine interpretation of these dreams which, which, which is born out in reality. He, he's helping someone out in need. It looks as if everything's finally coming together for him and those dreams are coming true. And so surely his, his own dreams from chapter 37, you know, if you got these dreams right, surely the implication is, well, his own dreams, which talked about his kind of elevation and his family are going to come and bow down to him and all these things, his, his great and bright future that's been foretold for him. Surely now, instead of being in prison, this will be where it all starts to go right for him. And so just when he thinks he's got his get-out-of-jail-free card, it all comes to nothing. And there is that sense that it's not just the cupbearer then who's, who's you know, failing to show loving kindness to Joseph, but what about God? What is God doing? Why is his man in the pit, in the dungeon again? Why the delay? What is going on? Why does he have to wait? 
<clears throat> and maybe we can identify with that. But that then takes us to the second thing that this chapter shows us, which is this hopeful suffering. Hopeful suffering. Joseph here is one of many examples of people in the Bible who have to wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. We'll see how God does that next week as he, as he does fulfill his promises for him. And we've seen before in Joseph's life, in the end, the timing is perfect. And God does what he does, and there's, there's reasons for it. But right now, at, the, at this point, Joseph can't see that as he waits. He can't understand what it might be. We've seen this before. We've seen this already with Abraham, you know, waiting for years and years in, in, earlier in Genesis before the promise of a son and descendants was fulfilled. And then God's people themselves will be in slavery for 400 years at the end of Genesis before the events of Exodus get underway. It just keeps happening. Think of, think of Job. You know, he's, he's the sort of archetypal innocent sufferer in the Old Testament. He hasn't done anything wrong and he suffers deeply. Think of, think of the psalmists. Think of the way the, the, the psalmists, the, the, the writers of the psalms, they cry out things like, how long, O Lord? How long does this pain and suffering have to go on for? Why? Think of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Waiting and not understanding as we wait for God's promises to be fulfilled, that isn't unusual. It's not abnormal. It's not that we've done something wrong, we've missed something. This is entirely normal for God's people. If we feel like our lives are characterized by waiting and delay or even disappointment, this is how the Christian life often goes. And actually the second reading we had from Romans 5 spelt that out. So Paul says, we glory in our sufferings. How can that be true? How can that possibly be true? Well, he says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And we keep seeing this, don't we, through the life of Joseph. God is a God we can trust. He is working all things together for good. You see, suffering makes you endure and persevere. And perseverance, or, you know, think about it, the modern sort of buzzword for this, particularly in education, is resilience. And it's a vital quality, isn't it? Because think about this. What kind of person do you want on your team, you know, on the sports field or in the, in the office? What kind of person do you want in a marriage? What kind of person do you want in a friend? Do you want someone who, when trouble comes, gives up straight away and says, I can't cope with this and walks away? Is that what you want? Well, actually, in those situations, we want somebody who isn't going to give up easily. And if that's what we want of other people in that situation, well, you can see then why it needs to be true of us. And it is suffering that gives us the kind of character that perseveres. That's what Paul is saying. And then that, that then becomes part of our character and the way that we interact with the world. Think of it again another way. What kind of person would you take advice from? Would you listen to and think, yeah, they're a wise person, I'm going to listen to them. 
What kind of person do you go to when life is tough? When you need to talk through a problem that you've got at home or at work or at school, or you need to talk about a person or a situation that is causing you pain or sadness. Are you going to go and seek out the person who has never suffered, very obviously, in their life, for whom life has always been a complete breeze? Is that the sort of person you're going to say, yeah, I'm going to get advice from you? The person who doesn't really know what real pain feels like. I don't think it is, is it? Actually, if the kind of person we we would seek out is someone who has suffered and persevered, in whom God has been working, and if that's the kind of person we would seek out in that situation, it's the kind of person God is making us when the answer to our prayers is no or not yet. And we feel like the delay is too much and we can't wait. He promises, he's giving us the gift of perseverance. He's causing us to be people who wait patiently for Jesus to return. And of course, if we still doubt that this could really be true, well then we look to Jesus himself, about whom the author to the Hebrews says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He suffered as he was given the option by the devil of shortcutting the delay in front of him. You know, you don't need to go God's way to inherit the kingdoms of the world, said the devil. Just worship me and all this can be yours right now. And Jesus resisted that temptation and he submitted to suffering according to God's will, even to the point of death. If we're struggling today with waiting, with delay, with disappointment, with frustration like Joseph did in the prison, know that Jesus himself knows those same temptations to give up and give in and take the easy way out. But that then takes us finally to the third thing that we see in this chapter, which is undeserved love undeserved love. As we read this chapter, it's easy, as as we've seen, to, to put ourselves into Joseph's shoes and see ourselves as those who suffer unjustly, who cry out, how long, O Lord, who say to God, remember me, and why aren't you answering me? But maybe, actually, we're a little too quick to do that. See, Joseph, in his life, points forward most clearly, not first of all to us and our own lives and our own circumstances and situations. He points forward most first of all to Jesus, And Jesus, as we've seen already, he suffered unjustly like Joseph. He'd done nothing wrong and they led him out to die. And with him on the cross as he died, who was there with him? Think about this. Well, there there were two criminals with him, we read in Luke's gospel particularly. Two criminals who who certainly had sinned and done wrong things that meant that they were deserving the, 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 the judgment that they Received One of them scoffed at Jesus, Luke tells us. And presumably he died and was lost for eternity. But the other said, don't you fear God, we're under the same sentence, but this man has done nothing wrong. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And you see, just in a very shadowy form, these two criminals in prison here with Joseph in their own way, 
remind us of those criminals with Jesus. See, both are guilty. One lives, one dies. But as we compare this with the death of Jesus, who are we to identify with at the cross? Well, not first with Jesus, actually, but with the criminals who die justly for their sins and their crimes. That's where we ought to be. And so perhaps here in Pharaoh's prison, we should identify first not with Joseph, but with the cupbearer and the baker in prison for their crimes. Now, the cupbearer's dream is one of blessing. Grapes and harvest are a sign of blessing. The baker's dream is one of judgment. And birds feasting on human flesh is an Old Testament image for judgment. It's the same language that God uses to warn his people at the end of Deuteronomy for the, about the curses that will come, come on them if they reject God and break his covenant. So an Old Testament reader reading this would hear the baker's fate and hear hints of what God warned would be his people's fate if they persisted in their sin. And what happens then to the baker is what we deserve. And Jesus is the innocent Joseph who, who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he went to the cross and died and took the baker's fate and lifted up on a pole on a cross. And he did it for us. So that, not that we deserve it, but so that our fate could be the cupbearers, restored to relationship with our God. That is undeserved love, do you see? And again, in, in Romans chapter 5, in the second reading, we heard Paul sums it up. God shows his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the upshot is, when we cry out, remember me, Lord, in your loving kindness, he does exactly that. By giving us what we need the most, a new relationship with him, which starts now and lasts forever, even beyond the suffering and frustration and the waiting that we endure here and now. We have what matters most. We have life that starts now and lasts forever. And so that means that as we wait now and we wonder how our prayers will be answered, we can know, no, he hasn't forgotten us. And he will not forget us because Jesus suffered and died and rose. If these things are new to you in, in, in the way that you're, you're thinking about them, and you're still considering Jesus for yourself, he, he asks you simply to trust him. To say, I know I've lived a life that deserves a fate like the baker, but I thank you that in Jesus I find undeserved love as he lived the life trusting God that I've not lived. And he died the death that I deserve so I can turn from my sin and have life in him. But for those of us trusting him and, and, and seeking to live for him, he says, will you trust me? Will you keep trusting me? That I am working in you as you wait for me. To give you a character marked by perseverance and endurance and hope. He says, today you can be confident of my love for you and you can wait patiently in hope because I am coming soon. Pray for that now.
So, Father, we thank you that we can put ourselves in your hands in the face of delay or disappointment as we wait, in the face of our sin as we recognize what we deserve is what happened to that baker. But in your love, you have remembered us. You sent Jesus to die for us. You promise to restore us when we trust in Jesus. And so as we, if we're trusting in Jesus today, we know that we are restored to you. And we thank you for the hope then that we have that transforms us even in suffering now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.